Gary were only children, too. We were born at the beginning of World War II, four or five years earlier than the baby boomers, which would be an advantage all of our lives. The war was the great mystery of those years. I knew we were at war against Germany and Japan. I knew Uncle Bill had gone away to fight. I was told, your father is too old, so they won't take him. He put bicycle clips on his work pants and cycled to work every morning. There was rationing. If Harry Rusk, the grocer, had a chicken, we had chicken on Sunday. Many nights we had oatmeal. There was no butter. Oleo came in a plastic bag, and you squeezed the orange dye and kneaded it to make it look like butter. It's against the law to sell it already looking like butter, my parents explained. Daddy and Uncle Johnny ordered cartons of cigarettes through the mail from Kentucky. Everybody smoked. My mother, my father, my uncles and aunts, the neighbors, everybody. When we gathered at my grandmother's for a big dinner, that meant nine or ten people sitting around the table smoking. They did it over and over, hour after hour, as if it were an assignment. After the war, you could buy cars again. The cars were long, wide, and deep, and I was barely tall enough to see out the window. Three could sit across in the front seat, and three and a child in the back. You filled up at Norman Early's shell station. He pumped the gas by hand into a transparent glass cylinder. He gave you green stamps. The great danger was having a blowout. We drove on the Danville Hard Road. It was a one-lane slab. When another car approached, you slowed down and put two wheels over on the side. That was when you had to be afraid of a blowout. One of the rewards of growing old is that you can truthfully say you lived in the past. I remember the day my father sat down next to me and said he had something he wanted to tell me. We had dropped an atomic bomb on the Japanese, and that might mean the war was over. I asked him what an atomic bomb was. He said it was a bomb as big as a hundred other bombs. I said I hope we dropped a hundred of them. My father said, Don't even say that, Roger. It's a terrible thing. My mother came in from the kitchen. What's terrible? My father told her. Oh, yes, honey, she told me. All those poor people burned up alive. How can I tell you what they said? I remember them saying it. In these years after my illness, when I could no longer speak and am set aside from the daily flow, I live more in my memory and discover that a great many things are safely stored away, that all seems still to be in there somewhere. At our 50th high school reunion, Pegine Lynn remembered how self-conscious she was when she acted in a high school play and had to kiss a boy on stage in front of the whole school. She smiled at me. And that boy was you. You had this monologue, and then I had to walk on and kiss you with everybody watching. I discovered that the monologue was still there in my memory, untouched. Do you ever have that happen? You find a moment from your past undisturbed ever since, still vivid, surprising you. In high school, I fell under the spell of Thomas Wolfe. A stone, a leaf, an unfound door. Of a stone, a leaf, a door. And of all the forgotten faces. Now, I feel all the faces returning to memory. The British satirist Oberon Waugh once wrote a letter to the editor of the Daily Telegraph asking readers to supply information about his life between birth and the present, explaining that he was writing his memoirs and had no memories from those years. I find myself in the opposite position. I remember everything. All my life I've been visited by unexpected flashes of memory unrelated to anything taking place at the moment. These retrieved moments I consider and replace on the shelf.
When I began writing this book, memories came flooding to the surface, not because of any conscious effort, but simply in the stream of writing. I started in a direction, and the memories were waiting there, sometimes of things I hadn't consciously thought about since. Hypnosis is said to enable us to retrieve past memories. When I write, I fall into the zone many writers, painters, musicians, athletes, and craftsmen of all sorts seem to share. In doing something I enjoy and am expert at, deliberate thought falls aside, and it is all just there. I think of the next word no more than the composer thinks of the next note. I lived in a world of words long before I was aware of it. As an only child I turned to books as soon as I could read. There was a persistent need not only to write, but to publish. In grade school I had an essay published in the mimeographed paper, and that led me directly to a hectograph, a primitive publishing toy with a...